Hey, thanks for joining us for Redemption Church Online. We are coming to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that we've been in for the last couple of months. And so uh, it's exciting to get to the conclusion of this book, which really is probably the main text of the whole book. Uh, if you were to read everything in the book of Ecclesiastes, but stop prior to chapter 12, verse 9, you would likely miss the entire purpose of the book. And so it's, it's a good text for us to be in today. I'm going to read. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up, or we'll throw the words up on the screen if you uh, choose to follow along there. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. Verse 9 says, In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write down or write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. Verse 12, but beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. A couple of things I want to make sure that you know about Ecclesiastes in case uh, you're joining us late in the series here. First of all, in verse 9, it mentions the teacher, and then again, verse 10. Really, everything up to uh, this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, except for the first verse, and there's some debate over whether or not there's another verse in there in the middle. Everything in the book of Ecclesiastes is the words of this man referred to here as the teacher. The Hebrew word is kohelet, and so it's a, it's a word that's translated different ways. Sometimes it's the preacher, sometimes it's the teacher. Um, the CSB, which we use here, translates it the teacher, and these are his words. Everything before this were the words of the teacher, and now we have these few verses that, uh, of words that don't come from the teacher. There's, there's somebody who compiled these works and wrote the conclusion to the book, and the conclusion really of the teacher's words and everything that he had to say. And so now, having read through all of the teacher's words, we're, we're kind of diving in, we're joining in uh, the person who has compiled these on his reflection of what all of these words mean. In other words, what is the conclusion of all of this wisdom? The teacher in verse 9, it says, In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. Well, if you look at the book ends of the teacher's words, verse, or, or chapter 1, verse 2, and then chapter 12, verse 8, he begins and ends the exact same way. He says, absolute futility. Everything is futile. That word futility and futile there, uh, we've mentioned several times throughout the series, is the Hebrew word hevel. It's a, it's a complex word with rich meaning. It's actually translated different ways throughout the book, depending on the context that it's being used in. But it's this idea of something that cannot satisfy, something that, that perhaps can't be held onto. It's something that, that has the allure of being satisfying, but in the end, it's just futile. It, it fades away. Uh, sometimes it's translated as smoke or a mist. And the concept there is that it's something that you grasp at, but you can't quite get a hold of it. It's futile. Absolute futility. 
That is the beginning and the end of the words of the teacher, that everything is hevel, everything is futile. And throughout the book, he's given many examples of this. He talked about his quest to find meaning in life. His quest led him to accomplish great things. He he, uh, accrued great wealth and he was very successful in a lot of different things he did. He knew what it was like to to have people around you and to be able to celebrate life and to eat, drink, and be married as he says a couple of times, but his conclusion in the end is that all of this is futile. I think that resonates with us as human beings because we experience the futility of the world in so many ways. It's, it's a common experience to man to experience that what we thought would satisfy doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy in the end. It's futile. It's hevel. What we pursued and what we thought would bring us joy and what we thought would bring us purpose and meaning fades away in the end, even down to our very lives, our bodies, as we just looked at last week in in the second half of 11 and the early part of chapter 12, that our bodies are even futile, that our life here on earth is futile. It doesn't last. We cannot hold on to it. Again and again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we're reminded that we are not in control, that we live in a world that was created by the creator and our lives are are largely not up to our control, that God does not cede control of many things of the universe to human beings. And it's futile. It's absolute futility. So what is the conclusion of all of this? That brings us to our passage here in 9 through 14. I want to break this down into a couple of points. Uh, The first one is this, and if you have the handout with you, you can get ready to fill in the the blanks. The first point is that true wisdom comes from God. True wisdom, which is what this book is about, it's wisdom. This is what we call wisdom literature. It's Old Testament wisdom literature. But we need to understand that true wisdom comes from God. Verse 11 says, Uh, The end of verse 11 says this, the sayings are given by one shepherd. The sayings are given by one shepherd. Now you have to understand that God reveals himself and describes himself throughout all of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament as a shepherd. We see this in the book of Numbers. We see this in the book of Psalms. We see it in Isaiah. We see Jesus in John chapter 10 refer to himself as the good shepherd. It's one of the, of the common ways that God refers to himself. He refers to himself as a shepherd. Of course, we understand that a shepherd has responsibility for the welfare of the sheep. If the sheep are going to survive and if the sheep are going to be healthy and if the sheep are going to be well and if they're going to to do what sheep are supposed to do, they need a shepherd. Sheep don't do well on their own. And so God uh, reveals himself as a shepherd. Of course, we're all familiar with Psalm 23 where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. This is David writing. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, this is a very helpful image for us as we look at Ecclesiastes and what it means that God is our shepherd and that he leads us by his wisdom because true wisdom comes from God. 
In the New Testament, in the book of James in chapter three, he contrasts wisdom that comes from God, as he says, wisdom from above with the wisdom that is not from God or earthly or unspiritual wisdom. Because there are different types of wisdom. There's such a thing as worldly wisdom. That's why I said true wisdom comes from God because there is wisdom that doesn't come from God, but it's not true wisdom. How do we know the difference? James tells us in chapter three, verses 13 through 18. He said, who among you is wise in understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. For such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. How do we know the difference between earthly wisdom and true wisdom, which comes from God? James says we know the difference by what it produces. Earthly wisdom produces selfishness. It produces uh, selfish ambition and it produces boasting and earthly wisdom creates bitterness and envy. But godly wisdom, true wisdom leads to good fruit. It's peace loving, it's gentle, it's compliant, it's full of mercy and good fruits. We know whether it's true wisdom by the type of fruit it produces. So how do we get such wisdom? That's an important question that James has already answered in his book. In, in James chapter one, he says, now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So true wisdom comes from God and we know true wisdom by the fruit that it produces. And we gain true wisdom by asking God and by asking him in faith, the faith, the type of faith that comes out of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The next thing on the handout is that wisdom from God spurs you into action and keeps you on the right path. So now I want to look at the beginning of verse 11. We looked at the end because I wanted to set up what is said in the beginning of verse 11 by putting it in the context of true wisdom being from God. As, as, the, as, the, as they say in Ecclesiastes, it comes from one shepherd. All wisdom comes from one shepherd. So wisdom from God spurs you into action and keeps you on the right path. There's two images here in verse 11. The first is this. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. Now, most translations go with the word goad. Goads are goads, probably not a word a lot of us use, but it's a little bit better than a cattle prod because uh, I think of something different when I think of a cattle prod. Uh, but a goad was essentially a sharp stick used by shepherds. And a sharp stick is useful if you're a shepherd because it's very convincing when you use it to move animals. And that's the idea of a goad. The sayings of the wise are like goads. They're like sharp sticks. And what do sharp sticks do in the hand of a shepherd? They spur into action and they keep us on the right path. Wisdom from God has both of those effects. 
Wisdom from God keeps us on the right path and it spurs us into action. I, I preached Ecclesiastes 11, the end of 11 and the early part of, of chapter 12 last week. And, and I was saying um, that one of the, the values of that passage in my life has been that it has spurred me into action. It's caused me to act because if you weren't with us last week, the, the general idea is that you only have so much time on earth and you're going to die. And so you have limited time to serve God while you still can, while you're still in your youth, as it says in those verses. And th- that we are to remember our creator in our youth and live our lives according to the end that is to come. That, that passage makes me want to act. That passage just provokes me out of complacency and reminds me this is the day to act, that this is the time to put into action the things that God has called me to do. That's what all wisdom from God does. It spurs us into action. It also keeps us on the right path. You You can picture shepherds. I mean, if we stick with the idea of sheep, uh, sheep will wander off uh, wherever their nose takes them. They have, they have no foresight to, to think about what is around them and where they ought to go and where they shouldn't go and what's a good path to be on and what's a bad path to be on. And so the shepherd uses his goad to keep them going in the right direction. That's the impact of wisdom on us. I was thinking about that, that uh, game that's sometimes played where you pair up into, into pairs, you get a partner, and one person puts a blindfold on, and the other person stands either behind them or in front of them, or I guess they could be beside them, and they have to lead them from one point to another using only their voice. And so if you're the person in the blindfold, you, you can't see anything in front of you. You don't know if there's something sharp you're going to step on, something you're going to trip over. If you, you just don't know what's in front of you. You're completely blinded to your surroundings. And so you listen to the voice of the one who is guiding you. And if you follow that person's voice, if they're a trustworthy person, then they will lead you safely through whatever obstacle course has been put in front of you. That's kind of what wisdom does. We don't, have, we don't have the foresight to see all that God sees. We don't always know which path is the right path to be on. We must listen to the voice of wisdom, wisdom that comes from God that keeps us on the right path. Follow his commands and he will lead us in the right way to go. Proverbs uh, talks a lot about wisdom. In Proverbs chapter one, it says in verse 20, wisdom calls out in the street. She makes her voice heard in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. This is what she says. How long, inexperienced ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking and you fools hate knowledge? I'll skip down to verse 33. It says, but whoever listens to me, this is wisdom speaking, but whoever listens to me will live securely and be undisturbed by the dread of danger. Then in chapter 2 of Proverbs, it says this in verses 12 and 16. It says of wisdom, it will rescue you from the way of evil. That's what wisdom does. It rescues us from the way of evil. From anyone who says perverse things. Verse 16 says, it will rescue you from a forbidden woman, from a wayward woman with her flattering talk. One of the strong themes that comes out in Proverbs, uh, which is written to young men, is that uh, by pursuing after the wrong women and, and being involved in, in things that you shouldn't be involved in uh, relationally, you will be eventually led astray. And so it says it will rescue you from that. 
Wisdom has the ability to rescue you from the things that could harm you. Wisdom has the ability to keep you safe and to keep you on the right path. In chapter four of Proverbs, it says, listen, my son, accept my words and you will live many years. I am teaching you the way of wisdom. I'm guiding you on straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Don't let go. Guard it for it is your life. You understand the picture here. Wisdom spurs us into action, but it also keeps us on the right path. It's, it's like a goad or cattle prod. What a great image. It's, it's a tool in the hand of the shepherd that can be used to get us moving when we need to get moving, but also to keep us headed in the right direction and to keep us into the safe places and to help us avoid danger. Continuing on with this image in in verse 11, the next point is this, wisdom from God stays with you and keeps you secure. I know this is similar, but it's a little bit different. I'll show you how wisdom from God stays with you and keeps you secure. Verse 11 says this, the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, okay? And those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. Now, this one was a little bit tricky to me, to be honest. You know, when we come to the Bible and we're studying the Bible, the first step uh, in studying, especially a book like Ecclesiastes or, well, any book of the Bible is to try to discern what the original author meant when those words were written. That's the first step in understanding the Bible, to get back to original meaning. It's not that we open the Bible and say, well, what does this mean to me? That's irrelevant. What did it mean to the person who wrote it as they were inspired by God? And then how does that apply to me? And how can I learn from that and live according to that? And so we start with what was the original meaning? Well, Throughout Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of illustrations and metaphors and language that isn't always easy to interpret from the original language into English, uh, which is the only language that I speak. I don't understand the original languages, so I'm dependent upon English translations, and I barely speak uh, that language very well to begin with. So I'm dependent upon that, and so you'll see different translations handle that metaphor or this image of firmly embedded nails a little bit differently. And then there's the issue of what what is the value of firmly embedded nails? And I could think of two possibilities, and I wrote them both down. And because I think I can defend them both from scripture. And so I thought it was safe. If I couldn't defend them both from scripture, um, I wouldn't have put them both there or perhaps would have just skipped over this altogether. But so I went with wisdom from God stays with you because that's what firmly embedded nails do. They're embedded. They stay in place and they're there. They're there permanently, right? Or at least close to permanently. And also they keep you secure. Those were the two uh, functions that I could think of, of firmly embedded nails. The most helpful wisdom is wisdom that you will remember. A firmly embedded nail, something that sticks with you is that is the most helpful kind of wisdom, something that you will remember that we see examples of this all throughout scripture. You think of the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do to you. That's easy to remember. I think most people could recall that. Jesus uh, uh, talks about what are the greatest commandments. He simplifies all of the law and all of the commandments of the Old Testament into two commandments that are very memorable. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's memorable. That's wisdom that sticks with you. 
Jocelyn, as she was teaching the kids lesson this past week, told this, the story that Jesus used or the illustration that Jesus used of taking a lamp and hiding it under a basket. And if you didn't see that video, it's a great illustration where she actually has a lamp and she covers it with a garbage can and the light completely disappears. Well, Jesus uses that as an example of how we as Christians are supposed to let our light shine. It doesn't do any good to take light and to hide it. The purpose of light is for it to shine in the darkness. That's memorable wisdom. That's the kind of thing that sticks with you. One of my favorite non-biblical pieces of wisdom comes from the show, The Office. I don't know how many of you like the, the show, The Office, but Kim and I talk about this scene often where Michael Scott, the boss in the show, asked one of his employees, Dwight Schrute, he said, uh, what's the most inspiring thing I have ever said to you? And Dwight, without hesitation, says, don't be an idiot. Changed my life. <laughs> and then he goes on to explain. He, he says, whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do it? And if so, then I don't do that thing. And it's just a funny scene where he says, you know, don't be an idiot. That changed my life. That's memorable. Wisdom that sticks with you. Wisdom, wisdom that, that you can remember is the most helpful kind of wisdom. It's like firmly embedded nails. They don't go anywhere. If you've ever tried to remove a nail that has been properly placed and, and properly formed, you know, they make them with those ridges on it. A lot of nails today come with glue on them if they're meant to stay in place. And you're trying to pull one of those out with nothing but a hammer. They stick. They stay where they're supposed to be. Firmly embedded nails also, though, they keep us secure. Wisdom from God doesn't just stay with us. It keeps us secure, just like firmly embedded nails. Last year, when we were preparing to move to Lower Borough, uh, we, bought, we bought the house that we wanted to move into and um, knew that we needed to put an addition on it. So we did. We put an addition on it last year. We hired, we hired an Amish crew to do a lot of the work um, and another general contractor that, that helped out a lot. And, uh, and then we had a lot of friends chip in and just did whatever we could do to get it done. Uh, but that addition is actually Kim and I's bedroom. And for the first few weeks that we were staying there, every time a storm would come through and the wind would blow really hard, I would just lay there in bed and think, is it going to hold? <laughs> not, not the addition itself, but like I'm thinking, is my siding going to be on when I get up tomorrow morning? Are my shingles going to be scattered throughout the yard? You know, I'm thinking, did, did the people who put these pieces in place do it right? Um, if so, I'll be safe and secure. If not, I've, I've got a problem. In that case, a minor inconvenience. Uh, but the concept of when, when something's done right and when it's, when it's secure, it provides safety. That's what wisdom does for us. Wisdom from God keeps us secure. We find examples of this throughout Scripture. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength. I think about that addition and how, you know, now I have confidence in it. I have, it's been through some storms. I mean, we've, we've had some terrible wind and, and it's held up. I've not had to replace any shingles. I've not had to fix any siding. Uh, I have confidence in it now. Now I lay in bed when the wind blows and I think I'm safe here. Everything's going to be fine. It's secure. God is our refuge and strength, Psalm 46 says. A helper who is always found in times of trouble. 
Therefore, therefore, we will not be afraid, though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil. You know, our earth has been shaken over the past two months. Things that we look to for safety and security have, have been shaken. Some of them have been taken from us and stripped away. But God has not been moved. He's our ultimate refuge and strength. And in times of trouble, we can find peace in him. Therefore, we won't be afraid. Let the earth tremble. Let the earth shake. Let the things that society depends on for safety and security be tumbled to the ground. God is our refuge and strength. On this idea of firmly embedded nails, I also thought of Colossians 2. Verses 6 and 7, which speaks to us as Christians and our relationship with Jesus Christ. It says, so then, just as you have received Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Some translations say firmly established or firmly rooted. This is the idea that our faith in Jesus Christ our faith in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And when he came and he lived the perfect life that you and I were required to live, but don't. And when he went to the cross and he paid for the sins that we have committed against God. And when he rose from the dead and defeated both sin and death, that message, the message of the gospel in it, we're like firmly embedded nails. We're rooted, we're secure, we are established in faith and we're safe there. Wisdom from God has that effect. It makes us secure in him. Let's keep moving through our passage in Ecclesiastes. When we come to verse 12, the point I want to make is this. Wisdom studied but not applied does more harm than good. That's a really important thing to think about coming out of the book of Ecclesiastes where we've dealt with a lot of wisdom and what it means to apply biblical wisdom to our lives. We need to understand that studying it but not applying it usually does more harm than good. Let's look at verse 12 together of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. He's setting us up for what he's about to say is the conclusion of all wisdom. The teacher did this. The teacher compiled sayings. He's, he speaks of this teacher, this, this man of wisdom who liked to pass on wisdom to other people. And he, we know from the book of Ecclesiastes, he searched far and wide for wisdom. He brought wisdom from other cultures and from other nations, and he compiled it for his people to pass on to them what he perceived to be wisdom. He spent a lot of his life and a lot of his time and energy on that very task. And in verse 12 here, we're reminded that we should be warned. There's no end to that task. You can spend your whole life compiling wisdom, but if you don't apply it, you've done more damage than you have good. Wisdom needs to be applied 
Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge is the acquiring of information, but love is acting on information. Knowledge puffs up. It makes you arrogant. It makes you think that you're better than you really are, but love builds up. He says in verse 2 of, of 1 Corinthians 8, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It's better to act on the wisdom that you have than to spend all of your time trying to acquire more that you'll never apply to your life. James 1 tells these uh, very memorable words of scripture in verse 22 and following. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and pre perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James also, just like Ecclesiastes, warns of being hearers, constantly learning, constantly hearing, constantly knowing more, but doing nothing with it. That is, that is damaging to the person who hears but does not act. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We have to be hearers. We have to be learners. We have to pursue the wisdom that comes from God. But if we study it and don't apply it, it does more harm than good. James points out some ways that he thinks faith is made manifest. You know, he talks about pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, he's saying, you know, doers are the ones who please God. Doers are the ones who fulfill the Christian walk, who, who live out the commands of Jesus. Not those who are hearers only, but those who act on what they have heard. And so we should pause and think as we look back over everything we've studied in the book of Ecclesiastes, what have we acted upon? What have we put into play in our lives? What, have, what has changed us? What has changed the way we think or the way we live or the way we, we do things as we go about our lives? Let's not just be hearers of the word. Hearers only deceive themselves, James tells us, but let's be doers. And then the final and most important point of this sermon and the most important point of the whole book of Ecclesiastes is this. This is the conclusion of all wisdom. Fear God and keep his commands. Remember, wisdom, uh, the wisdom that's most helpful is the wisdom that is memorable. And so here we have this very concise way of summarizing everything that we need to know about the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commands. This is the conclusion that the book leads us to. That's why I say, if you read everything up to verse 9 of chapter 12 and stopped there, you would likely miss the point of the entire book. In light of the futility of this world, fear God and keep his commands. Verses 13 and 14 says this, When all has been heard, 
The conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. When all has been heard, having heard all of this wisdom, being, uh, being aware of the fact that you could keep seeking wisdom your whole life, you could gather more and more wisdom for yourself. But when all has been heard, this is the conclusion of everything. Fear God and keep his commands. Fear God and keep his commands. Now, the word fear here likely uh, alludes to this idea of revering and obeying him. Not fear him in the sense, I mean, there is a sense in which we should be afraid of what God can do. He, he, he is a powerful God. He is the almighty God. He is the creator, the sustainer of the universe. Think about that line from the lion, witch in the wardrobe. I was just talking about this the other night in my, my small group. I came across this again. I love this little scene where one of the children in the lion and the witch of the wardrobe is asking about Aslan, the lion. Aslan the lion is the, the main figure in, in that book or in that movie. And she, this little girl asks, is he safe? And she says, I'd be quite afraid to, to go up to a lion. And, and the response that she gets is safe. Oh, no, he's not safe, but he's good and he's king. Jesus isn't safe. He's good, though. And he's king. And so there is a sense in which fear is an appropriate response. But I think that the meaning here is, is to revere him, to obey him, to honor him with the life that has been given to you, to live, to live in light of him and to know that you will one day stand before him and give an account for what you've done with your life. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. You hear that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear God and keep his commands. What are his commands? Jesus summarized it so nicely for us in Matthew 22. Someone asked him, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? There were hundreds of commands in the law. And there were debates then and, and still are today over which of those are the greatest, which of those are the most important, which of those are the most powerful when you obey them. Teacher, which command in the law is greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. What a powerful statement by Jesus. All of the law and the prophets. He's re referring to the Old Testament. You want to obey the Old Testament? You want to obey the law that was so important to the Jewish people at that time? Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Well, how do we love God? We love God by responding to what he has done on our behalf in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins on the cross. That is the first and most important step in loving God. You cannot love God apart from loving Jesus Christ. You cannot obey him. You cannot keep his commands apart from responding to the gospel. And so we must, we must respond to the gospel. We must make it the, the greatest priority of our lives to accept and to believe in and to live our lives in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day you will stand before God and give account 
for everything you have done in your lifetime. One day, God will judge you according to Ecclesiastes and according to the rest of Scripture. He will judge every hidden thing, whether good or evil. For God will bring every act to judgment. In light of that judgment, fear God and keep His commands. In light of that judgment, live your life in accordance to the gospel. Live your life loving God and loving your neighbor. The question that begs to be answered as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and as we look at everything that that, that, the teacher has had to say about life, and as this man who has achieved great things, who's been probably one of the most successful people in his generation, if not the most successful person in his generation, as he looks at life and he surveys everything that he has accrued and everything that has happened, and he says it's futile, it's absolute futility. It doesn't last, it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't bring, bring us the life that we hoped it would. And so what should we do in response to this? Fear God and keep his commands. The most important thing that you do in life is to fear God and keep his commands. It's not how successful you are in your job. It's not how much money you have. It's, it's not how many people you can gather around you or how many followers you can get in social media. It's not success in any of the ways that our world defines it. It's how we respond to the God who created us and gave us life and placed us on this earth and told us exactly what he wants us to do. Love him and love our neighbor. Will you fear God and keep his commands? Will you respond to the gospel and live your life in obedience to the God who created you? This world is full of futility. It's full of things that don't last or satisfy. If the past two months haven't convinced you of the futility of this world, I'm not sure whatever could. This world does not have what we long for. The things of this world that we expect to satisfy, they don't. In fact, they taunt us day in and day out. You thought you would be satisfied in me, but look at you now, empty and begging for more. It's never enough. You won't find satisfaction in this earth. Therefore, fear God, keep his commands. For that is for all of humanity. This is the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. And when all is said and done, picture yourself at the end of your life, just, let's say, just after you've taken your final breath and now you have a chance to look back so much of what you did in your life and so much of what you spent your time and your energy and your resources pursuing is futile. But for those who love God, those who fear him and keep his commands, for those who have acknowledged their life in light of their creator and said, you placed me here, I will live my life for you. Getting to know you, enjoying you, serving you, introducing you to the people around me, to those people, they will have eternal life. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. Those who know him, love him, and do his will will enter into eternal life. So fear God and keep his commands.
for that is for all humanity. Let's pray. Jesus, we bow before you in reverence and fear, in awe of who you are, creator, sustainer of the universe, our savior, the one who came and died for us on the cross, the one who was there in the beginning, the one who will be there in the end, the eternal God, God forever. This world is fleeting and it's futile. So much of what we chase after doesn't last nor satisfy. Yet you promise us that everything that is done in obedience to you has eternal rewards. And so in in anticipation of that day on which we will stand before you in judgment and give an account for our lives, I beg you to help us, to give us the grace to live our lives fearing you and keeping your commands. May we live lives that, that exemplify a love for you and a love for neighbor. May we live uh, in light of that certain fate and make our lives count for eternity. In Jesus' name, I ask that. And Father, I also pray for anybody who has not yet trusted in Jesus for salvation. Would you draw them to your son for salvation? As your word says, no one comes unless the Father draws him. Would you be drawing right now through your word many more to you for salvation? and welcome them into our family and give them a new and eternal life. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, let me remind you of something I I said last week, a quote that I like to remind myself of. Just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.